0: Conservative or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at EGBERTOWILLIES. That is at Egberto Willies. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics done right from the studios of KPFT, 90.1 FM, Houston, Your Community Radio station. We have a great program for you today. You today, I think you guys are going to love this. We have the author of Clash, John Marshall. We are going to really discuss that, uh, uh, what we have with respect to the media. I challenged him about uh, many things that the media, I think, get wrong. We had a very healthy discussion that we we play that at the end of the, the program today. I think you guys are going to love it. But anyhow, we're going to discuss much of what is happening in uh, in in Uvalde. I mean, that still hurts to the core. I sit back and wonder how these people do what they do. But you know what they say. Let's get busy. The NRA would love to let you believe that they are in support of the Second Amendment and they're there to protect the rights of those good red-blooded real Americans, right? That's what they like to preach. They always do that. But why do we believe it? La La Perille, their CEO, he spends their money like it's his own. But not only like it's its own It's like it's money falling from a tree But you know what? What they think about their own members It is astounding Check this out And then we'll take it on the other side Because you would not believe What they actually think about their guys Check it out
1: it was 11 days after the shooting at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, that killed 13 people. Five students were still hospitalized, but the NRA's big annual meeting that year had already been planned. It was set to take place in Denver, about a half an hour drive from where the shooting took place, and the NRA decided the show must go on. 8,000 people protested outside the NRA meeting in Denver that year. Tomorrow, the NRA is holding its annual meeting in Houston, just three days after the mass shooting here in Uvalde, Texas. President Trump and Texas Senator Ted Cruz are all scheduled to speak, but the loudest voices at the meeting might be outside of it. Protests of the events are being planned. Now, it's shocking to learn that the NRA has had two annual meetings this close in both time and proximity to major mass shootings, but it makes sense. Their meeting is annual. The shootings are far too common. But that isn't why I wanted to direct your attention back to that NRA convention in Denver in 1999. It's worth focusing on that convention because of some incredible audio that NPR unearthed last year, giving us a window into what the NRA, which is ostensibly a member-led and democratic organization, thinks about its own members. This audio is of the leaders of the NRA debating whether to still have their annual convention after the Columbine shooting. They ultimately decided they would scale it down, remove the exhibit halls that could lead to pictures being taken of kids holding guns and other bad optics, and just have the speeches And the members meeting This is one of the key lobbyists for the NRA at the time Talking about why scaling back Might be a problem for them
0: if you pull down the exhibit hall that's
2: not going to leave anything for the media except the members meeting and you're going to have the wackos with all kinds of crazy resolutions with all kinds of, of dressing like a bunch of hillbillies and idiots and and it's gonna it's gonna be the worst thing you
1: can imagine That's right. The worst thing this lobbyist from the NRA can imagine is what he called the NRA's own hillbilly idiot members. The NRA hasn't had an annual meeting for the past two years because of COVID, but its last meeting was in 2019. It was consumed by infighting. The president of the organization was forced out by its board. Its longtime CEO, Wayne LaPierre, was nearly ousted by a vote of no confidence. The source of the drama? Well, if you were an NRA member in that year preceding the convention, you might have noticed that their fundraising efforts were becoming more and more desperate. This is an email to members from CEO Wayne LaPierre, quote, the Second Amendment cannot survive without the NRA and the NRA cannot survive without your help right now. But at the same time, the NRA had reduced spending on its avowed core mission, gun education, safety and training to less than 10 percent of its total budget. And public reporting was showing all sorts of fun ways that that money was being spent instead. Thirty nine. $29,000 $29,000 for one day of shopping in Beverly Hills for the CEO Wayne LaPierre, $200,000 for air transportation for a two week trip to the Bahamas over Christmas for the CEO Wayne LaPierre. And this one never ended up materializing, but the Wall Street Journal got its hands on documents confirming that the NRA was going to buy a $6 million mansion for Wayne LaPierre. And that's just Wayne LaPierre. It turns out lots of board members are being heavily assisted by their member donation piggy bank. Remarkably, Wayne LaPierre is still the NRA's CEO. He will be at the event in Houston tomorrow. And while the organization may tout itself as one designed to defend the Second Amendment's rights of its members, the facts tell a different story. In the wake of Sandy Hook, the Violence Policy Center discovered that the gun industry donated tens of millions of dollars to the NRA, with nearly two dozen gun makers lining the organization's coffers. And while the NRA is only spending 10 percent of its money on its actual core mission, and then a little on top of that for Wayne LaPierre's lavish lifestyle. The one thing it is serious about and does spend big money on is its messaging, messaging that helps gun manufacturers keep selling more guns. So when you see images coming out of the NRA meeting tomorrow, video of crowds of people cheering on Donald Trump and Wayne LaPierre, remember that the NRA uses its members to get what its leaders and the gun lobby wants, not the other way around.
0: Now, is that interesting? Or what? It is amazing. It is just amazing what they think about their own. And to think that these people continue to send them money, send them cash. Folks, let your fellow NRA members see this video. Let them see what, how their group actually thinks about them. It's never about the second amendment. As they get harm, as they populate and fill the coffers of the gun companies, the gun companies are just giving their money to the NRA to keep misleading you, misinforming you, so you'll continue to buy their crap. And in the process, a lot of Americans get killed. As you guys know, uh, Corinne Pierre, she's an immigrant from Asian uh, relatives, family. She's also a LGBTQ person. And you can see how our system tries to discredit the other. And sometimes it is done in very, very subtle ways. And if you are, I pick it up and I tell folks about it, but most people are going to listen to this and just hear it. And then they won't really look at it until she does something and then they associate that subliminal message that was imparted into their cranium and then later it comes out. But if you know what is being done, you can actually look through things the, the correct way. You can actually say, ah, no, that is really, they're really trying to malign her. Let's go ahead and see this and then we'll take it on the other side.
1: John Kirby, the, the admiral of coming in from the Pentagon, uh, this comes in a moment as the communication staff is, is reshaped at the West Wing. Uh, Jen Saki, of course, just left. Corinne Jean-Pierre, the new press secretary, just started on the job this week. She had her first couple of briefings. But what Kirby brings to uh, the White House is an expertise on foreign policy, which is something Corinne Jean-Pierre uh, does not necessarily have. She, her background is politics, domestic issues. Uh, so there's a sense that there will be a little bit of, there's no question, Corinne Jean-Pierre is the press secretary. But we'll have more of an elevated role here out of the National Security Council for John Kirby than we should, I'm told by officials, expect to hear from him at White House briefings as well, particularly on matters when it comes to the war uh, in Ukraine and other foreign policy concerns.
0: How condescending. Uh, yeah, Karin John Pierre is, yeah, yeah, she's a, she's a press secretary. No doubt she's a press secretary. But we have this other guy that he'll be able to come and explain these little political things to her. Well, guess who has more knowledge in government? Than Jen Psaki. Look, Jen Psaki was great. She's a great communicator. I love Jen Psaki. I think she's one of the best that ever held that office. But you know what? Corinne uh, Jen just started. But the other thing about Karin Jen is that when you look at her qualifications next to Jen Psaki's qualifications, you look and you say, hmm, okay, you have this major. You ha- Jen Psaki is an English major, and we have this person who has polisi and public uh, uh, peer uh, public uh, uh, public policy government policy etc. in her education they never once said that about about jen saki they never question her because you know how you know what press secretaries do. They are briefed. They are educated on every particular issue they need need to talk about. You don't have to say that person isn't experienced in, uh, in, in in foreign policy. That's not her job. But the thing about it is, she is more experienced in foreign policy than is Jen Psaki. So why did he talk about Jen Psaki? He talked about Karin Jean-Pierre. He didn't say, well, uh, you you would you, it would have been interesting if he would have said. Well, you know, Karin pierre comes in. Uh, in the public sector, she's a bit more uh, um, educated in that matter than Jen Psaki, uh, but still they're bringing another person into the fold to her in these difficult times. That's not how they framed it. They framed it as she's new, she's not as experienced, and they just went ahead and said Jen Psaki is leaving. The subliminal message is that the transition is a transition down and that she needs help it couldn't be further from the truth but that's what that journalist have in his head because of who it is sitting back on that press conference this is a perfect opportunity that shouldn't go unused
3: You know, one of the amazing ironies here is that the the big thing they did pass, right, the American Rescue Plan, you've got this bizarre situation, right? Every Republican votes against it uh, in the in the U.S. Senate. Every every Democrat votes for it. It gave all this money to the states who are now using the large from the federal government to dole out goodies while attacking the Democrats. Right. So this is uh, the Orlando Sentinel talking about uh, um, Ron DeSantis, who's going around to events, cutting checks. We're proud we didn't do like Washington and spent money like a drunken sailor when all of a sudden you end up with all these problems. He said at a recent event in Trenton where he doled out federally funded grants. DeSantis never mentions the largesse sharing comes from Washington. Instead, he attributes the money to Florida's strong economy. Democrats in this position are the worst of both worlds, which is the policy success they voted for that Republicans are posed, local Republicans get to claim credit for.
0: Remember the Tea Party days? Remember what they did? They created events. Every time a Republican goes around and uses money that came from the Democrats, we should have bullhorns out there following these Republicans and letting people know the truth. Please get one of my several books out there. As I see it, class warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia, take away the economy from those who rigged it for a pledge of $120. Get any two of those books for $200. Any three of those books for $250. The Contributions from my books go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT-only membership for $40, a Pacifica-only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to kpft.org. Choose Politics Done Right for the program and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. Farid Zakaria has been examining where we are in this country. The separation that's been occurring, the polarization. And in my part, the polarization is not caused by those good conservatives in the room right now. I know some of you get upset when I look at a Mike Sisek or a Lee Grant, or I look at uh, who else is a conservative here, Smith, or I look at uh, John Smith, or I look at, uh, I think I had some more conservatives in here, Eric Hayes. and like, why do you give them a break? And it's not about giving them a break. It's about your sources of information and who you trust and who you believe, right? And the one thing that I do understand is who they do, right? So I'm not gonna. I am not going to. I live this stuff, and not only here, but in board board meetings, et cetera. How this stuff works, and they're good. Those guys who polarize us, they're good. They know what they're doing. We reward them. We reward them by really attacking or those and so forth. We have to embrace these guys. Not. I mean, wait. I mean, if they slap you, slap them back. If they punch you, punch them back. But at the same time, let's go ahead and understand what engagement is all about. But Farid Zakaria a Zakaria like had a piece here that I want you guys to listen to because it's very important. And I think it's something we can learn a lot from. Check it out.
4: As the prospect of Roe versus Wade being overturned looms large and America braces for another round of culture wars, I've been puzzling about why clashes over values seem to be more intense in the United States than elsewhere and why the competing camps seem more divided than before. One key to this might be found in a 2020 Pew survey showing that on many cultural issues, the American political divide was the widest among rich countries surveyed. Asked whether the country would be better off in the future if it sticks to its traditions and ways of life, 65% of Americans on the right said yes versus just 6% on the left, a 59-point gap. That compares with a 19-point gap in tradition-bound France. Asked whether being Christian was a crucial aspect of being a citizen of the country. The gap in America was 23 points compared to just seven points in the UK. These attitudes are fleshed out further in a 2018 Pew survey, which asked people in several rich countries whether religion should play a larger role in their societies. In America, 71% of people who identified as conservative said yes, while just 29% of liberals agreed that difference, 42 percentage points, was off the charts compared to the other countries. The gap was 17 points larger than those in the next highest countries analyzed, Canada and Poland, and roughly four times the gap between right and left in Sweden and Germany. In the UK, 35% of conservatives wanted religion to play a larger role in their country versus 28% of liberals, a mere seven-point gap. Many of the forces that seem to be at work – globalization, technological change, immigration – are happening in other Western societies as well. In fact, if you use the size of trade in a country's economy as a measure, America is less globalized than many European countries. It's not even special when it comes to immigration. Canada and Sweden have a larger share of foreign-born people in their societies than does the United States. And of course, technology is at work everywhere. In his last book, Religion's Sudden Decline, the distinguished social scientist Ronald Engelhardt offered an answer. Engelhardt pointed out that the most striking cultural shift of our times is the decline in religiosity in most countries. When Engelhardt and his colleague Pippa Norris analyzed survey data on attitudes toward religion from 1981 to 2007, they found that most of the countries studied had become more religious. But between 2007 and 2020, the overwhelming majority became less religious. The standout in the recent studies is the U.S. of A. For a long time, America was the outlier in showing that rich, advanced countries can still be religious. In recent years, though, it has been reversing course to dramatic effect, Since 2007, the U.S. has been secularizing more rapidly than any other country for which we have data, notes Engelhardt, adding, by one widely recognized criterion, it now ranks as the 12th least religious country in the world. Engelhardt explains that this process of secularization has many causes, mostly relating to the decline of group norms, of mechanisms of control, and the rise of individualism. But here's the interesting part. As this broad shift is taking place in the US, it is coinciding with increased polarization. So the picture that emerges is of a country that is rapidly secularizing, but at the same time seeing a strong backlash to that process. Big changes are leading to big reactions. You cannot really understand America anymore by looking at averages. It has become two countries. One is urban, more educated, multiracial, secular, and largely left of center. The other is rural, less educated, religious, white, and largely right of center. Ingelhart and the scholar Christian Welsel have a famous cultural map that plots countries according to their responses to questions about values. But if one were to divide America into two countries, one red and one blue, I suspect that you would see that blue America would fit comfortably with northern European Protestant countries, while red America's cultural values would move it closer to Nigeria and Saudi Arabia.
0: We think about that. Nigeria or South America, or rather Nigeria or Saudi Arabia, is what red country is starting to look like. And this is Farid isn't This isn't this is some bleeding heart lefty. This is a guy that's right down the middle. That really sees what's happening in America. He's seen how we uh, we're, we're, the, the religiosity portion of America, what they're doing to their pew, hurting them. They're seeing that you know if you take a look at what's occurring to those areas, those are the areas that lack educ that there's less education because their governors, their politicians are so evil that they don't want their people educated. they are the ones that are there. Making sure that their people don't get the health care because if they get, or, or policies that provide health care, because that means they are going to be smarter. And the last thing they want is somebody smart that is going to run the risk of changing the way things have always operated. We have to understand how these things work, folks. And Farid Zakaria, again, uh, he is not a bleeding heart liberal. And that he points out that reality that many of us on the left have been talking about. Just give that kind of a credence to what what it's all about. Every time one of these incidents occur, we sit back. We say this time is going to be different. Or that's how it used to be. What is sad is now I am seeing people say nothing is going to change. We can't change this. It's as if the horror has left us impotent and feeling a sense of worthlessness. And you know what? That is what's been taught for a long time, you know? But the problem is we don't have people in their particular ideologies just coming back and saying, you know, it is wrong and We are going to do what is necessary to make the change. You know, you could see that sort of resolve in Joe Scarborough's last comment. You know, he's a conservative. He left the Republican Party because of Trump. But, I mean, he's a conservative who is now seemingly ready to tell folks, you know what? These guys have just now hit the limit. It is their fault why all of this is going down i want you to listen to this and then we'll take it on the other side
3: i do my best uh, to try to be fair to both sides, even when that's extraordinarily difficult because of the way some in my former party have conducted themselves over the past five, six, seven years. But I must say, there is no splitting the difference here. There is no King Solomon splitting the baby here. This is all on the Republican Party. If you want to know why those universal background checks that you support will never be voted on, it's because of the Republican Party. If you want to know why those crazy laws might be being passed in your states that allow people to carry weapons of war openly. And if Ron DeSantis has his way without a permit, without any training, it's because of the Republican Party. They're owned by the NRA. And so we keep hearing again and again and again from presidents who can't even pass legislation that nine out of 10 Americans support.
0: And that is the power that we have denied ourselves. Nine out of ten Americans want good policy that will protect American citizens and that we have allowed, that we have disempowered ourselves by simply allowing them to fool the way we vote, for them to play with the vote. We have harmed ourselves. It does not have to be That way, let's get busy. Let's ensure that these politicians pay the price for what they've done. Everything that has occurred in Uvalde, all that has occurred in Uvalde, is on the backs of the Republicans. There is blood on their hands, and they should pay for it. Do remember. We are in fun drive right now, but you are still getting yourself a great program uh, that we work at putting together for you. Stuff that you, some that you may know on a small level, some that you may not know at all. That's why we are here. Politics done right. KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. We're asking you to invest in this community radio station. But why? Because, folks, there's a lot of media out there, but it's not media that you control. It's not media that has your interests at hand. When we're talking about community radio, when we're talking about this community radio station, KPFT 90.1 FM, we're talking about a station that is solely funded by whom? You. And if it is funded by you, our loyalty is to you. Most other stations, commercial stations, they're funded by their advertisers, and their advertiser needs to program you. And they need to have you in a particular modal. That is why our politics is so bad, because we need you. Uninformed. Politics done right doesn't believe in that. Politics done right, KPFT 90.1 FM, Pacifica Network, we don't believe that. We believe that it is essential that you are in control. It is essential that you support us so that we can feed the ethos, that we can give, we can enlighten with what is the absolute truth. In that light, I'm asking you to please call 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org and support us. You can support us with a $25 membership, a $40 membership, or you can get any one of our gifts that you find there. Please do this in the name of politics done right. Also, remember that you can get one of my several books out there As I see it, class warfare, the only resort to right wing doom for a contribution of one hundred and twenty dollars. It's worth it. How to talk to your right wing relatives, friends and neighbors for a contribution of one hundred and twenty dollars. How to make America utopia, take away the economy from those who rigged it pledge of $120. You can get any two of those books for $200, any three of those books for $250. That That is to support our station. And all those books, I promise you, give you all that you need to have that conversation across the board to ensure, to help us make a better America. So please support us. Please support KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Call 713-526-5738 or visit kpft.org. In the name of Politics Done Right, please select one of our books, several of our books, or one of our offers. We are here for you. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash right. On YouTube Live at politicsunright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds k p f t in your minds talk about it tell your friends about it tell them you know about this station in town 90.1 fm houston that needs your support that is there to provide what that nour- nourishment that we need 713 526 5738 k p f t . o r g visit us online contribute online k p f t 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. Welcome to one more edition of politics. And right. Now, I'm a better is your host today. We are honored to have John Marshall. Who's John Marshall. John Marshall is an associate professor at the middle school of journalism, media, integrated marketing and communications at Northwestern university. He is the author of Watergate's legacy and the press, the investigative impulse. His work has appeared In the New York Times, TheAtlantic.com, everybody here watches that, listens, I mean, reads that, WashingtonPost.com, Christian Center Monitor, Princess Science Monitor, CBS News, Public Eye, Chicago Tribune, Huffington Post, and many other venues. It is my honor to have you, Dr. Marshall. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, Agriento. How are you today? I am
0: doing great. But I tell you what, normally when I start these, these interviews, I don't start with a book that you write. But it so happened that this book that you write wrote, I think, just the title alone is something that 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 it's something that we have to take into account right now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book and and the and the tenets that you brought out in the book?
2: Sure, I started on the book back in 2017, mm-hmm. soon after Donald Trump was elected president, and we all saw and heard a president. Who vehemently and consistently attacked journalists, mm-hmm. uh, used violent imagery to describe journalists, applauded when a when a congressional candidate body slammed a journalist, uh, and called journalists enemies of the American people. I wanted to understand how we got to that point in mm-hmm. terms of the relationship between presidents and the press, and what whether what Donald Trump was doing was completely unprecedented, or were there some precedents uh, for? what he was doing and, and what were the forces that that led to this point.
0: Now, let me ask you this, because you said whether it was unprecedented or not, or whether it was sort of delivered through some sort of externality, other forces that came out there. What, what was your thought on that? Was it unprecedented or not?
2: Well, there are parts of it, the, what I found from my research, some of it was precedented, some of it wasn't unprecedented. So what was precedented uh, first to kind of, Intense partisanship in the media. We've had that before, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the early years of this country, in the 1790s, early 1800s. Uh, I, I write about John Adams's presidency and uh, things are just as nasty then as they are. now. Really? They were. Yes. Uh, the, the the level of insults, the level, mm-hmm. level of criticism. One thing that was fascinating is the uh, kind of rhetoric around immigration mm-hmm. was very similar. Uh That immigrants were bringing in uh, crime, were bringing in disease, were going to be disloyal. They talked about immigrants in the same way in the 1790s, except they were talking about the French, Irish, Germans and the Irish. Right. Different nationalities. Same same rhetoric. Uh, What was also precedented is Donald Trump was famous for using Twitter as a way to reach his base, mm-hmm. uh, to try to motivate his voters. Uh, but he was far from the only president to use a new technology to try to go beyond the White House press corps and speak to the public directly. Franklin Roosevelt famously did that with radio right? chats. He got around the publishers. Many publishers hated Franklin Roosevelt, but he got around them uh, through new technology. John F. Kennedy and other presidents used television. And then starting with Obama and then and then definitely Donald Trump using social media to do that. So that part was precedented, too. Also precedented was uh, Richard Nixon was the first to really come up with the strategy of casting journalists as an enemy, as an enemy that that the public should distrust.
0: Let me let me let me back up and ask you, you said Nixon was the first one who actually made the press the enemy, not these others.
2: Right. Uh, I mean, other every president has complained about the press Mm-hmm. Uh, has has been upset about things in the press, occasionally lashed out at the press. I think they've mm-hmm. all done that. But for Nixon, it was a definite strategy. There's in, in his in his archives, you can see memos that his chief of staff wrote to him saying we can make the press a useful enemy. And Nixon wrote, uh, we need to discredit the media. We need to discredit it. Uh, so it was a it was a focused strategy that he had. Uh, in the end, it didn't work for Nixon. He was uh, forced forced to resign because of Watergate. Uh, but Trump picked up that strategy and then kind of put it on steroids in terms of casting the press as an enemy. So those are things I think were precedented. Things, some things that were unprecedented about Trump. Uh, every president at least paid some lip service to the idea that a free press is important in the United States. Right. The First Amendment is something important. Even if they really disliked journalists, they would still say we need the First Amendment, we need a free press. Trump, nah, no, uh, just the opposite. And Trump was really the first uh, to use violent language about journalists and the first to make spreading conspiracy theories at the heart of his presidency as part of his media strategy. Uh, so I think there, there were parts of the, of the Trump presidency that was unprecedented and then there, there were parts that we've seen seen in the past in history.
0: Okay, I I wanna expand the discussion a bit because my my concern here is uh, it is horrendous that Donald Trump made the press the enemy, that Donald Trump attacked the press, that Donald Trump actually put many of the press in danger. However, my question to you with regards to the press has to do now with the accuracy of the press. And isn't it true that to some extent they've laid the groundwork for, if you will, of the demise of the stature that they would normally have. As an example, um, Donald Trump, in my humble opinion, would not have become president in the beginning if some of the most ridiculous things he spoke about were treated as such by a press who actually gave it legs. In other words, uh, when we spoke about... Let me give one good example, and then I'd like... For this example, I'd like to like a response. Remember that we had... Obama was considered, uh, he was illegitimate because he was born somewhere else. Now, we all know that McCain was born in the country of my birth, Panama, okay? Now, Obama was born of an American mother. Even if you thought he was born in Kenya, it would not have mattered. Obama could be president because, just like McCain, was a natural-born citizen because he was of a of, 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 uh, mother of American, of an American mother. So would have Obama had been, even if born in Kenya. Yet not any, there's no American that would would know that if he's born in Kenya, he was still a legitimate president.
2: Oh, you're, you're absolutely right about that part. So to uh, kind of two part response to what you say. Uh, yes, journalists, the press, the media makes a lot of mistakes. Everything the media does is is by definition public. We we mm-hmm. see it all, we hear it all, right. we read it all. Uh, so, uh, unlike most other professions, you, you make a mistake, you're not necessarily going to get caught in it. Mm-hmm. Journalists get caught, and, and deservedly so. Uh, so, I'm not going to say that the the press is always perfect about it. And I think the example you give is a great example of when they did a, a very bad job. Uh, and I write about this in the book uh, quite a bit. That that Trump spread this this lie. It was a lie. It was, it was a false conspiracy that 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 Obama wasn't really a true American, uh, even though his birth certificate proved he was born in Hawaii. There were newspaper announcements, you know, birth announcement and when he was Ooh. born in in the Honolulu newspaper. Uh, but yet Trump was able to spread this conspiracy, uh, not just on Fox News, where he went regularly to to, to push it, but Uh, on some of those, you know, so-called mainstream, uh, TV stations, he would, he would go on like good morning America and spread it. Uh, and he, he's he's clever about it in that he would say, well, we need to ask the question, uh, or some people are saying, which is a kind of a classical Mm -hmm. conspiracy theory thing. Well, some people are saying this, so I'm going to talk about it, even though it's demonstrably untrue. And the particularly the the TV shows he went on did not call him on it. And they continued to have him on their shows uh, because he was good ratings. So they were were going for the dollars. They were going for the profits. Trump was famous. They would have him on. He would say these ridiculous conspiracy theories. And sometimes they push back on it, but usually not. And they let him get away with it. And and he rode that to the White House.
0: Now, Dr. Marshall, with uh, staying on that same subject with the, the Obama thing, is it the response, as an example, that I, I mean, is it a responsibility of the press to go the next step? In other words, uh, you point out the fact that you stated that, yes, we could find his birth certificate. Yes, we could find uh, all that information. But the fact that he was born of an American mother m- made made it made not whether he was born in Kenya or not moot. It made it a moot point. But the press didn't go that extra step to say, even if, should they do that? And I can bring some other examples as we we look at inflation today and uh, how prices have gone up. Did they say that? But we're starting from a negative position. In other words, during the pandemic, we started from a negative position and thus the absolute growth looks like inflation is more than it is. Things like that concerns me that it has political effects on our system. But it's not accurate reporting that that does it. So, my, your answer.
2: So, I do think some of the press did point out the the fact that you did about about his about his mother, uh, mm-hmm. but I think it, it got buried in the stories mm-hmm. and didn't didn't get enough attention. So, I'm I'm gonna mostly agree with you about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what your your point about inflation is uh, I think one bias a lot of the media has a lot of the press has is is toward the negative, uh, right. towards conflict. Uh, we're, we're, we, the press tends to look for conflict because that's more dramatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's more drama to talk about the problems with inflation, which are very real. Less drama to talk about. Oh, wages have gone up. Uh, unemployment has gone way down. Uh, the deficit is going down. Uh, so there's there's a focus on the bad news uh, rather than the good parts of what's going on. Uh, so I don't. I think the press does a bad job of of sometimes getting the complexity of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and i think they also focus on the whole you know not all reporters but but a lot of them focus a lot on sort of the horse race aspect of politics right which candidate's up which candidate's down right how, yeah. how is this policy going to affect the midterm elections or how is this mm-hmm. policy going to affect joe biden winning or not winning in 2024 rather than what does this policy mean for different americans or different people around the world what are the advantages of this policy disadvantages What are some of the complexities of it? Uh, There's some of that reporting, but I think it gets tends to get drowned out by the drama of of that horse, political horse race reporting.
0: Now, based on your research, um, what in because empirically, I can say certain things. But, uh, you know, I imagine you've done some studies. What how influential is the press and how much has the press changed what would have otherwise occurred? No, that's a great question.
2: Uh, I mean, there are studies about uh, how the press has the ability to kind of set the agenda mm-hmm. in terms of what issues people talk about. And it also has the power to to frame the issue, to kind of what we were just talking about, what what to include in the story, what to leave out of the story. Uh, there were some studies done that after um, birth of Fox News, the, the people who listened to Fox News were several percentage points more likely uh, to vote Republican, then before they had listened to, to, to Fox News, as as one example mm-hmm. of how uh, press or the media can can sway people uh, politically. So uh, it's going to depend a little bit from outlet to outlet in terms of how much difference it makes, and it probably varies from person to person. But but on the whole, uh, how the press uh, what, what stories the press covers, and then again how how they frame it does does indeed make a difference, as you suggest.
0: Now, um, you know, I remember being in Washington, D.C. during a, in the old days, during a tea party protest. And uh, we came with um, Build a Dream. And we had several thousand people that came to Build the Dream, right? And we we had about, you know, maybe a couple dozens, a few dozen tea partiers. And when we saw the news that day, uh, we had a slight mention of Barber. And it was as if Washington was controlled by the Tea Party in those days. Um, how much responsibility should the press take for issues like that?
2: Uh, that's, a, that's another really good example. Um, I write about in the book how uh, the Tea Party was really um, an offshoot of Fox News, mm-hmm. and an offshoot of a lot of talk radio show hosts. Uh, the Tea Party was really kind of nothing at the start. Uh, it was one, one guy on a rant uh, the Fox I remember that on Fox promoted yeah. it. Uh, and Fox News uh, personalities uh, would lead Tea Party rallies. Uh, and the same with some of the talk, conservative talk radio hosts as well. Uh, so the, the, that was a case where at least some elements of, of the press were pushing uh, this ideological uh, uh, position. And uh, I I think the rest of the a lot of the rest of the press is sort of guilty of sort of responding to that and saying, oh, we've got to cover that equally uh, to what Obama is doing. So we're going to give the Tea Party equal coverage. Uh, And I'm one who uh, you're just saying that Reverend Barber, as Mm -hmm. I understand it, the the same day, um, Mm -hmm. I I admit that I was unfamiliar with that. So Mm -hmm. that that's that's a good case where his the coverage of what he was doing did not get get equal time.
0: Well, it's interesting because he he has a, a group out, the Poor Man's Campaign, and it's a it's a great multicultural group. It looks like America, and they are out there doing a lot of things throughout the country. And they are ones that are really supporting a large. As as you know, what the what the, the stats tells us about uh, America right now, they are actually supporting what a majority of the population wants. And I'll be darn, I don't see them in the news. So my next question is, how much you know? I understand that it's wrong for a lot of folks to deal with the media the way they deal. That's why we have independent media. But, I mean, uh, it it is kind of interesting that um, we don't see the coverage of things that matter to, let's say, 70% of the population. And if you look at the – you go to a White House news conference, and I listen to them every day. And you go to a White House news conference, it doesn't cover 90% of the things that that really is – uh, reference that references the everyday person.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, on the whole, the press does not do a good job of covering poverty and issues for working class people. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that happened during the first year of the Biden administration is that the child poverty went down mm-hmm. significantly yes. went yes. down. Yes. We didn't hear a lot about that. Uh, we heard a lot more about uh, corporate tax cuts and so forth. Uh, and I, one of the suggestions I have in, in the last chapter of my book of, of Clash, where I'm, I make some recommendations for the future, is that I think the White House press corps needs needs to circulate more, mm-hmm. uh, not just stay inside Washington, uh, but spend time.
0: Doctor, let me stop you there because yeah. that is how I really want to end with, with, with solutions, because I, I think that is exactly what uh, what what we need. So before you get into solutions, sorry for interrupting there. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you about. Um, if there do you see any backstories for the reasons why things that matter, let's say like environment, which is a is a is a very in what what's the word that I want to use whatever it's very important right now for our survival, doesn't have the coverage relative to its importance to society at large.
2: So why, why is that the case?
0: Again, I have a contention that we have too much, that the media is a part of this capitalist system, if you will, and as such, it also depends on the corporate, the same corporations that it may have to speak out against. Is that, is there any validity to that?
2: I, I, I think there's some validity to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a large portion of the media is controlled by large corporations. Uh, and I think there may be instances when uh, reporters are pressured n- not to not to cover something. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I've I worked in a lot of newsrooms uh, and I know that every reporter I worked with was most interested in, in getting a good story
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and finding out what was going on. Not, not that we were perfect about it. Um, mm-hmm. And I never had a case where an editor or a publisher told me not to do a story. Uh, I think part of it is um, that uh, I mean, climate change is reported on; uh, it's it's out there. Uh, but I think it's also it's it's complicated, and it's easier to tell the, the those kind of short horse race stories uh, than it is uh, to try to explain uh, what's going on with climate change. And I think it gets also gets into what we talked a little bit about earlier. Uh, climate change most affects. Uh, people living in uh, poorer countries mm-hmm. right now. And I think we have we have very weak global coverage. Uh, and in the United States, the people who are most affected uh, by and large are people who live in uh, less advantaged communities. Uh, those are the people who get hammered the most when there's a hurricane or when there's mm-hmm. flooding uh, or when there's fires and droughts. Uh, it tends to be those neighborhoods. Uh, so I think it's back to a little bit to uh, too many journalists uh, coming from, from the middle or, or, or wealthier uh, classes and, and not paying an attention or, uh, yeah. uh, to people who uh, are living in poverty or, or people who are or barely making it in, in, in the economy.
0: Is there any possibility of some self-censorship as well, knowing who pays the bills?
2: I think there's some there's some possibility of that. I think there's some examples of that. But again, my experience is that what journalists are most interested in is Beating their competition, getting a story—we're <laughs> we're very competitive. Yeah. Uh, I, I once you know, punched a hole in a wall when when my, the competitor when knew, gets it before you, right? On a story that I should have had. Uh, <laughs> we want to beat the competition, so part of it there's there's kind of a group think. I think like if uh-huh. if your competitors are covering one thing, then you're going to try to outdo them on that one thing, and they you see that I think in Washington all the time they they get yeah. focused on one story, uh, don't think about the broader picture.
0: All right, let's let's end it this way. I I have and it ends with two questions. Uh, First of all, please give me some solutions. Number one, and I'm going to tag this one along because I don't want to kind of put it on the side. Tell me what you would have liked me to ask you that I didn't. And if you see any one of my interviews, that's always always my last questions, my brother.
2: (laughs) OK, that's great. That's always that's usually my last question when I'm out reporting too. All right. I love it. I love it. Uh, so I do suggest several solutions uh, in my book. Uh, one, I think, gets at some of the things that you've been bringing up is uh, more support for nonprofit mm-hmm. journalism. Uh, there are some excellent examples of, of nonprofit journalism around the country, uh, but it's not as big of a sector as the for-profit journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, ProPublica is probably the best investigative oh, yes, are, site good. out there now. They're a nonprofit. Uh, there's a number of sort of traditional, established newspapers that have, that have switched to nonprofit status. In in my own city, Chicago, the Chicago Sun Times is now uh, allied with the local public radio station and has gotten nonprofit status. But as I understand it, the, the tax laws are, are really difficult to navigate to do that. It's really complicated, uh, and the, and they don't make it easy to to become a nonprofit. Uh, so I think that's something that could be done to make that easier. I think um, a huge part of the revenue that comes from digital advertising goes mm-hmm. to two places, Facebook and Google. Uh, last ad I saw was, was three-fifths of the digital advertising dollars are going to those two companies. Wow. Uh, Australia passed a law that when Facebook or Google, Google or any other social media company uses news content that somebody else created uh and that's what they do you know the people will yeah. post the news from elsewhere and then people see it on facebook facebook sells ads from that uh, so australia has a law that if facebook or any other company uses news that someone else created guess what they have to pay for it <laughs> there, there has to be a fee that goes to the people who did the reporting to get that information and i think if there's additional revenue for reporting we're going to get deeper and more diverse Mm, mm, as a result. Uh, So those are two of the the suggestions I would have. I've got, I've got many more more, folks to get the
0: rest of his suggestions, go get the book, which is going to be along with the blog. And you can just do it as you listen to the show as well. Continue my friend.
2: Uh, And then I think a question I wish you'd ask me is what, what can we all, as, as, as citizens, um, as voters, as members of the public, as consumers of media do, um, I think we all have a responsibility to become savvier about what we're consuming, understand how social media algorithms work, uh, to try to push and promote the most incendiary content, most controversial content, rather than necessarily the most factual content. Uh, there's a stat in my book that in the April of 2020, the first big month of COVID that sites from the 10 leading health websites got 70 million views sites from the 10 leading conspiracy sites about COVID got 300 million, four oh, times as wow. many. So we need to become smarter about how that works. Uh, and I think that media kind of media literacy needs to be taught in the schools. I think media literacy is a basic skill. Now, like like algebra or or poetry, uh, media saturates our lives. Uh, we're we're bombarded with it, and we need to understand uh, how to sort through what's propaganda and what's real information, what's what's verified, information, what's not verified, how advertisers are trying to work us, uh, manipulate us, uh, how those algorithms work. Uh, And just uh, really understand what what it is that we're consuming uh, so we can be able to sort through the disinformation and get to the facts.
0: Dr. John Marshall, associate professor at the Medill School of Journalism and the author of Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Thank you, Berko. Thank you very much for having me. Get any two of those books for $200, any three of those books for $250. The contributions for my books go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT only membership for $40, a Pacifica only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to kpft.org, choose politics done right for the program and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. You can listen IES but don't you forget listen to us live on air at KPFT 90.1 FM on Thursdays at noon and at Fridays at 11 a.m. all central time please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds keep KPFT to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S.
4: That is at Eberto Willie's. Let us engage.